As Pastor Caleb said, my name is Derek. I am so excited to be here this morning and to be teaching. I always love when I get the opportunity to be here and just, um, it's encouraging to me to see what God is doing here, and hopefully it allows me to be kind of an encouragement and a blessing to your church as well when I come to visit. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I am the uh, Connections and Youth Pastor at the Well Church in Boulder, uh, just a few miles up the road. Maybe you've heard of that town, maybe you haven't, I don't know. Um, but uh, today, I get the privilege of talking about hope as we kick off our Advent series. And I don't know about you, but hope is something that I need pretty frequently. Anyone else ever feel that way? Like you could just regularly use a good dose of hope? That's how I feel. Um, I, I was thinking as I was preparing this week about kind of some formative moments in my life. And I think back to when I was 16, 17 years old. Uh, I don't remember which one. That was a long time ago. I went with my church to South Dakota. And we uh, were working with a church planter there. Uh, who was working with um, like the Sioux tribes in, on the reservations in that area. And we were um, just kind of helping them with some of their church planting efforts. It was my first time ever to go on any type of a missions trip or anything. And I remember being on that trip, and I'm going to be completely honest with you, I did not go for the best reasons. I had never been further west than Oklahoma. And so I wanted to just see what else was out there in the rest of the country. Uh, at that point in my life, uh, there were some girls on that trip that I thought were pretty. And I thought maybe now's my chance to shoot my shot and go on this trip. And so I did. I did everything I needed to do to go on this trip. And what I saw, what I experienced as a, uh, just a teenager who was pretty, um, pretty dense for my age and I didn't really take too much seriously what I saw was pretty heartbreaking and tough for someone my age to experience, realizing that, oh man, you know, all, a lot of the problems that I thought I had in my life to see bigger problems um, was just eye-opening for me. I remember, I, I remember seeing um, child abuse. I remember seeing um, pretty extreme poverty for anything I had ever experienced in my life, uh, alcohol abuse. Just all sorts of things that I had never really experienced in my kind of sheltered Christian life. And this kind of awakened something inside of me. It was, it was interesting because I did not really take my faith seriously at that point in my life. And then I saw this and I realized like, oh man, there are way bigger things for me to worry about in this world than the stuff that I kind of worry about in my day-to-day -day life. So the next year comes around and my church is like, hey, we're going to go help out with a church plant in uh, Monterey, Mexico. And so I jump in a van and I head to Monterey, Mexico with my church. And again, I saw poverty like I had never experienced. People living uh, in, in living situations that I didn't even know existed at the time because I was just kind of living in my little bubble. Um, I saw people that lived on living wages of like one to $2 a day was their income. I had never seen anything like this before. And I remember thinking deep in my soul, and this actually led me on a lot of journeys to go to different places and just see things that I had never seen, to just kind of be exposed to those things so that God would break my heart over this stuff. And this is something that even impacted me as a, as a father now. I want my children to experience this, not, um, not for some sort of a pity, but so that they will have a bigger vision of what God wants to do in the world. And I remember thinking, and for the first time in my life, navigating this tension of looking around at the world and thinking, there's something wrong here. This is pretty messed up. There's something broken in the world. And, and, and there's this tension that I just started to feel that kind of um, has continued to this day. And I think 
Every single one of us kind of walk in this tension on a daily basis. We see things in the world that we know, like, I don't think that's how it's supposed to be. I don't think that's how the world is supposed to operate. Something needs fixed. Something is broken. Something is wrong. We, we just look around. I mean, if you just even, and I'm not going to go into too many details on this, but if you just look, like in the past year, over the things that we've experienced as a world and as a country, we see sickness. We've seen divisions. We've seen hatred. We've seen injustice. Um, I don't know what it's like here in uh, Arvada because I don't spend too much time here. Uh, I, I come every now and then for some restaurants or something like that. But, you know, living in Boulder, I know homelessness is like growing massively in our city. And tent cities are starting to like kind of pop up all, all over where we're at. Um, and we're wrestling with like, what do we do? What do we do for these people that are, are down on their luck? What do we do with these people that are homeless? And we find ourselves regularly, I feel like, as people wrestling with the realities of living in a broken world and wondering, what can be done? Is there hope for these people? Is there hope in this world? Where can we turn to? And so what we do is we find ourselves kind of depending on, on, on kind of where you are and, and what you look for in hope. We look to so many different things to fix the brokenness of the world, to offer hope. And so you know, just a few weeks ago, we all ran to the ballots, right? And we voted and we wanted our voices to be heard because if we can just elect the right people to the Senate, if we can just elect the right people to the House, if we could just put the right person in the White House, maybe we could have hope as a country. Maybe, maybe somebody could fix the problems that are in this world. Or maybe we, many of us will turn to causes, right? We turn to activism, if I just show up at this place and I hold a sign up, maybe someone will hear. Maybe there will be some hope. Maybe some change will happen. If I just march, maybe I can make a difference. And listen, I'm not knocking any of that stuff this morning. But I, I'm just trying to acknowledge the reality that we look to different places to offer hope to the world. Uh, maybe we turn to just kind of logical explanations. This is just how the world is. And there are systems that need to change that are broken, that need to be fixed. If you're wrestling with this stuff, I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not alone in feeling this tension. This is a tension that every single person feels. And today we're kicking off Advent, uh, the week of hope. We're celebrating Christmas. We're, we're talking about the arrival of the King. We're talking about the arrival of Jesus. And what, what you're going to be doing is you're going to be looking over the next few weeks of different stories, different characters in the Christmas story Kind of how all of these things, uh, or all of these stories, in, overlap with not just how you, or not just the Christmas story, but what we deal with on our own, and what we feel, and the tensions that we wrestle with. Um, when we look at the story this morning, and when we think about the political and the, the social climate of the day when Jesus was born, we need to understand that there was a lot of political unrest in that day. There were a lot of uprisings. Jewish zealots would have many times tried to overthrow the Roman government at that time because they felt like something needs to change. There was a lot of this, this tension in the air. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of persecution when Jesus stepped into the world. There was a lot of hopelessness. There were a lot of questions from God's people. Has God forgotten us? Because when I look around at the world, it sure feels that way. When I look around at what's happening, it sure feels like we have been forgotten by God. God has made promises to us, but I don't see those promises coming true. What is happening? What is going on? So 
when you think of the time of Jesus, and you think of the time of Jesus' arrival, you've got a people, the people of Israel, with this deep, almost anticipation. Something has to change. There's something broken. Something, somebody has to rescue us. And they are desperately in need of an intervention from God when Jesus arrives on the scene. On a smaller scale, when you kind of zoom in on this story of God's intervention with his people, you've got this story about a couple that we're going to look at this morning who is also in desperate need of intervention from God. See, God's people are in a position where they are unable to enact the changes that they need to happen in their lives. They need something greater. They, it's fair to say that at this point in Israel's history, they were barren, unfruitful, needing change. And then you've got a couple that we're going to look at this morning that they are also barren and they are in desperate need of God's intervention on their life. Um, so the couple that we're looking at this morning are more than just a couple in the Christmas story. They are object lessons of something bigger, of what God is trying to teach not only the people of Israel in his day, but what God is trying to teach us this morning. So let's pick up the story of Zechariah. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 1. I think it will also be on the screen behind me here. Awesome. We're just going to read the first uh, verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So Zechariah's story picks up with a little information about him and his wife. Zechariah is a priest. He would have been someone who worked in and around the temple and would have directed the worship of the nation of Israel. And it says that he and his wife, Elizabeth, were both righteous and blameless. Now, that's quite a statement. And it's a very important part of this story. I don't think that could be said, like, like, I don't think people would probably say that about me. You know, Derek is pretty blameless. I don't think many of us would say that about ourselves. And so I think it's really important that we see that the author, uh, Luke here, actually points out the fact that this was a couple that if anyone deserved God's blessing it would have been these people. They were righteous. They were blameless before God. See, in those days, they had this kind of idea. Maybe, maybe we can relate to this, but they had this kind of idea that God blesses good people. So if you're a good person, God blesses you. If you're a bad person, God withholds his blessing from you. And I think most of us can relate to that feeling. I mean, if you've ever like cheered in a movie when a villain goes down, like you relate to that, right? Like, yes, they're getting what they deserve. Like, we do this as well. As a society, we celebrate when bad things happen to bad people. And at the same time, when good things happen to good people, we also get excited about that. But what I've noticed is what tends to happen in our own lives is this. Like, when I see a bad person go down, I celebrate. When I don't receive the blessings that I want, I tend to get mad at God. That's not how the world's supposed to work. I'm a good person and I'm supposed to be blessed. I'm good and I definitely deserve only good things from God. And most of us think this way. Um, one way that you know if you may think of this way is if you talk about the concept of karma. 
I know it's very popular to talk about karma. Well, what is karma? Karma is actually a Buddhist belief that basically says, and it's been adopted by American culture, but it basically carries the idea that your actions come back around. So if you're a good person and you put good things out there, whatever that means, then you will receive good in return. And if you're a bad person and you put bad stuff out there, you'll receive bad things in return. And so that's kind of how people thought of God. If I put good out into the world, then I should get good. If I'm a good person, good things happen. If I'm a bad person, bad things happen. And so Luke goes out of his way to tell us that Zechariah and Elizabeth are barren, but they're also righteous. They're good people. But people in that society would have looked at Zechariah and would have looked at Elizabeth as if they weren't good people. They must have some skeletons in their closet. They must have some dirty little secrets that, that don't need to get out there in the open because otherwise they would have a child. Otherwise, God would bless them. And because God's not blessing them in this way, then apparently they're not good people. And so people would have judged them just by the fact that they didn't have children. And so this is actually this barrenness that Zechariah and Elizabeth had would have been something that brought them a lot of shame. They would have been embarrassed about this. Children in in that day were considered a sign of God's blessing on your life. And so if you couldn't have kids, you didn't have God's blessing. Therefore, something was wrong with you. In fact, it was so shameful in that day to not be able to have kids that the religious leaders of the day regularly taught that if your wife couldn't have kids, that was grounds for divorce. You could divorce your child or divorce your wife for not being able to have kids. So this is something that would have brought shame on their family. This is something that would have been disappointing to them. So not only are they dealing with the shame of society, but they're also dealing with just personal disappointment. They looked at their situation. They looked at where they were in life and they wanted something different. And they were disappointed that life had not worked out the way that they hoped. I'm sure many of us can relate to this feeling. Like most of us have experienced times of disappointment in our lives where this is the hand that we've been dealt. And we had no control over it. We had no say over the hand that we were dealt. And we're just dealing with the disappointment of not being where we want to be. Um, I think of this with careers, right? Many of us, we, we jump into a career thinking, this is where I want to be financially someday. And then maybe you're not there. Maybe some of it was out of your control. Maybe it was just poor financial decisions you made. I mean, we can acknowledge that, but maybe you're just not where you wanted to be with your career, with your finances, and you're just disappointed, like with your station in life and where you are. Um, I know as you get older, at least me, since I've had kids, this is something that I feel when it comes to friendships, Right? Like, it's like, man, I just want relationships with people that are my age, but everyone's so busy and everyone's doing their own thing. And it can be really easy to be just disappointed with where I am, with relationships in my life and with friendships. Maybe you've desperately wanted a spouse and God has not blessed you with a spouse yet. And you're disappointed with where you are in life. And you're like, man, I just, I just want to find that person. And I can't. Maybe you can relate to Zachariah and Elizabeth very specifically. Like, I want, I want a child. And God doesn't seem to be blessing me in that way. And, and I feel this kind of disappointment in my life because things are not the way that I expected. This would have also been disappointing to them, not just because of their station in life, but, you know, um, you may not know this, but like retirement benefits and social security and stuff is a fairly new thing in human history. Like I'm talking like the last hundred years or so, uh, a little over that, that we've had like retirement, the concept of retirement. And so... In those days, when you got older, if you didn't have kids to take care of you, you were in a pretty bad situation. Like you needed children to be able to take care of you. And so they're thinking about the future. 
and what's going to happen with their lives. And like, okay, we can't have kids. Who's going to take care of us when we get older? Not only this, they were too old to have kids, it says. Like, so they were completely unable to enact change. They couldn't do it. There was nothing they could do to change their situation. The interesting thing about this story is that not only does this describe Elizabeth and Zechariah, this would have described the nation of Israel. As Israel would have read this, they would have been like, I can completely relate to what Zechariah and Elizabeth are going through. God had made promises to Israel at this time. And they, for what they had seen, didn't seem like they were going to be coming true anytime soon. They're living as a conquered people in the Roman Empire. And they were promised a king that would never leave the throne. Where is this king now? We need something to change. Is God going to keep his promise? They're looking around saying, this isn't what God promised our nation. This looks pretty dire. God promised us a Messiah. Where is he? Where's the Messiah? They were in need of a savior and they were barren without a savior. And this brought the nation shame. This brought the nation disappointment. Let's keep reading. Verse eight. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So during this time, Zechariah gets uh, just kind of like by chance, gets the opportunity to go into the temple and to burn some incense and uh, for the people. He gets, this would, would have been like a once in a lifetime opportunity for most priests. Is that my thing clicking? Yeah, sorry. I don't think I can control that. I just have to ignore it this morning. Um, but basically he gets a once in a lifetime opportunity to go in and to burn incense outside of the holiest place of the temple. And this would have been a big deal for him. And so what's happening is he goes in and he's offering up prayers for the nation of Israel in the form of incense prayers that would burn and kind of go up to God. And he's praying specifically for a child. And outside the temple, you have the people of Israel gathered that are also offering up their prayers as well. Needing an answer from God, gathered, praying for a Messiah, praying for things to change for the nation of Israel. What happens next? And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And... He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So as these prayers are going up from Zechariah and from the people of Israel, Zechariah looks up and an angel has appeared just as says to the right of the altar of incense. So, I mean, he's in this place alone and he looks over and there's a creature standing there. And if you've ever seen the real life depictions of angels that have gone out, the, the biblically accurate angel descriptions that you see on the internet, it would have been a terrifying sight for him to look over and see this creature beside him. So he's terrified. And the angel tells Zechariah, hey, listen, your prayers have been heard. 
you're going to have a son. And not only have your prayers been heard, but you're over here offering up prayers for the nation of Israel, and their prayers have been heard too. I'm answering two prayers at once here. God is answering these prayers because they're going to have a child, and this child is going to be named John, and John is going to make things ready for the Lord to do what he's planning to do with his people. He's going to prepare his people the nation of Israel. So both Elizabeth and Israel are in this situation where apart from God, they are barren. They need God to act. And God is actually making plans to answer both of their prayers at the same time, Zechariah and Israel. But not only is God answering their prayers through this, the tensions that we feel that I mentioned earlier, God is making a way for those as well. He's answering the deepest needs of every human heart in one swoop. You see, Scripture teaches us that not only was Zechariah and and Elizabeth and Israel barren, but all of us are barren when it comes to our own selves apart from God. We need intervention from God. We are unable to enact change in this world on our own. We are unable to enact the change that our hearts so desperately need on our own. Scriptures teach us that we're barren apart from God. You see, Karma doesn't work. It just, I hate to burst your bubble if you're like a karma person, but karma doesn't work. It's actually kind of terrible because if all of us get what we deserve, that's a pretty rough world to live in. Karma is completely opposed to the grace of God. You see, Romans tells us that there is no one who's righteous. Not even one, not a single person is righteous. We are barren and we are unable to save ourselves from our deepest brokenness. We're unable to save ourselves from ourselves because the problem is not out there. The problems with the world is not a system. The problems with the world is not uh, something that we can change politically. Uh, The problems of the world are not things that we can march and change for. Not that, that any of those things are things that we shouldn't do. The point is this, the problem with the world is us. It's in the hearts of every single person. It's not an external problem. It's an internal problem. And the only way to fix the external problems with the world is to start here. It's to start internally. And we are all barren when it comes to being able to fix the brokenness inside of ourselves. And yet, through a child, God is answering our deepest needs. In answering the prayer of Zechariah and Elizabeth and bringing John into the world, God is ultimately answering the prayers of the people of Israel, which is that they need a child to step in and save them as well. And all of us needed this child to step in and save. And so God is actually answering through Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer. He's answering our prayers as well and this tension that we wrestle with. So how does Zechariah respond to all of this? Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So it actually says that Zechariah initially responded with unbelief. It says he didn't believe. He starts asking questions. He starts immediately making excuses about what God cannot do. He starts to say, well, listen, you don't understand. How's this going to work? My wife is old. She can't have kids. What do you not understand? I can't have kids. 
And the angel's just like, zip it. Shut your mouth and just watch. Just watch what God is going to do. And this is another sign of Zechariah's barrenness. He's like, you can't do this. So just be quiet. I'm going to make you completely unable to do this, and we're going to take, God's going to take care of this. And he makes Zechariah mute. So Zechariah goes home. He sees his wife. I would assume he probably writes out everything that happened to him so that his wife can understand the situation. And, it says, and his wife actually believes. And they get busy doing what married couples do to have children. And nine months later, a baby comes along. And the whole time, Zechariah has been mute, unable to speak. So all he's been able to do is just watch as God has answered his prayers and how God is working things out to, um, they, they end up meeting uh, Mary, who has baby Jesus in her stomach, and the baby inside Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy whenever um, this baby realizes that the Son of God is in um, Mary's womb. And so they get to actually meet the, the Messiah in the womb, and it's just this incredible thing. And Zechariah can't even speak when this is happening. He can't even talk. He's just in awe of everything that God is doing and everything that God has done. And he's having to just watch silently for months. As a matter of fact, we don't have time to get into this, but when this happens, it bubbles up to the point where when Zechariah gets the opportunity to speak again, um, just a little bit further in uh, chapter one, the first thing he does, because he's watched for months in silence, is he just bursts into a song. It's like a musical in real life. Like he, he just can't help. He's in so much awe of what God has done. It just bubbles up into song. It bubbles up into a song of praise of what God is doing. Like I have watched for so long as God has answered my prayers, as God has offered me hope, as God has offered the nation of Israel hope through uh, my child that I just can't be quiet anymore. And I have to just sing about what God has done. I've watched as God met my wife and I in our barrenness, and has given us a child. And I'm watching as God is meeting the nation of Israel in their barrenness and is giving them a child to, to deal with the sins of the world and to do for Israel what Israel could never do. So when he finally can speak, it's a song of praise that comes out of his mouth. Now the question that's not answered in this story, we see Zechariah's response, which is initially unbelief. We see Elizabeth's response, which is just joy and belief in what God is doing. What we don't see until later in the story is, how is Israel going to respond to this child? How is Israel going to respond to what God is doing? Will they respond like Zechariah in unbelief? Will they respond like Elizabeth in belief? And my question for you is very simple this morning and, and very similar. How will you respond? Because the message this Advent season and the message this morning for you is not, how will you deal with your own inability? How will you deal with your own barrenness? How will you deal with the problems in the world? And though, though those things are important, ultimately the question is this. It's not that you need to deal with your own brokenness. It's not that you need to deal with your own barrenness. It's not that you need to take your own shame and your own disappointment into your own hands and try to fix it. It's that God will meet you in your barrenness and in your brokenness with Jesus. That's the hope that God offers to all of us this morning. See, God cared so much about you and your barrenness and your sinfulness that he split the gap between heaven and earth to send his son Jesus to this world. 
that he split history between B.C. and A.D. by sending his son, not just for Israel, but for you and for this world. So the question is, will you put your trust and your faith and your hope in Jesus alone to solve the barrenness in your own heart and in your own life and to solve the brokenness in your own uh, in your own life and to solve the problem of your sinfulness will you put your trust in Jesus alone to save you from your own self-righteousness will you put your trust in Jesus alone that he will accomplish what he has promised in you and in this world that's the question this morning it's the same question that was posed for God's people 2000 years ago will you trust in Jesus so if you trust Jesus personally already, and you would say, yeah, that's, that's where I'm at. I'm a Christian. Maybe I've been a Christian for a couple days, or I've been a Christian for a long time. The question I have for you this morning is this. We have promises that Jesus will come back. And so part of what Advent is, is not just looking back at the fact that Jesus arrived on the scene, but it's actually looking forward to the fact that Jesus will return. And when he returns, he will step into the barrenness and the brokenness of this world, and he will make everything right. So will you trust in that? Will you be a hopeful people? That's what God is calling us to. It's not to, to distance ourselves from the problems of the world and pretend they don't exist. It's not to pretend that like votes don't matter. It's not to pretend that activism or whatever doesn't matter. It's to say, you know what? I'm going to trust God to deal with the brokenness in the world. And I'm going to, in the middle of hardship and in the middle of this tension that I feel, I'm going to be a hopeful person because I know that Jesus has promised that he will return. How does Jesus' return affect your hope? How does it affect your joy? Christian, you do not have to give in to despair this morning, no matter what happens in the world around you, because Jesus came and Jesus is coming again. I was thinking this week about um, probably the second or third time I ever came to Boulder. I was not living in the area at the time, but I knew that God was calling our family to move to Boulder. And shortly before I moved here, there was a big flood. Does anyone remember? Was anyone around here when the flooding came? Yeah. So the, the flooding came and I think it was like 2012, 2013, somewhere around there. And, you know, I was like, I want to do whatever I can to help out because God's called me to the city. I should probably go and show some love to the city that I'm going to be moving to in the next 18 months or so. So I jump in a van with a disaster relief team from Virginia, and we start making our way out to Colorado. I rode in a van for 26 hours with a bunch of people I did not know that were more than twice my age. It was like all retired people at the time, because those were the people that had the time to like pack up and just go across the country for who knows how long. I mean, there was no like timeline of when I was even going to come back. I was kind of at the mercy of whenever the van driver was like, okay, we're going home. And luckily the church I was at knew that I was going to be coming out here. And so they're like, hey, just go. We'll take care of things while you're gone. Um, this is a good test to see if some of the stuff you've set up is going to work while you're gone anyway, because you won't be here. And so uh, I took off in this van and um, we got here. Um, I stayed in the um, Boulder County Fairgrounds. I just like slept on a cot there in the Boulder County Fairgrounds in Longmont. And we were just every day going out to help people in, in and around Boulder County. And so I would get into crawl spaces and I would dig mud out of people's crawl spaces. We were getting mold out of people's homes getting them out of their walls. And about halfway through the like three or four weeks that I was there uh, or that I was volunteering, we ended up going to a small community uh, called Pinewood Springs. If any of you have heard of that, there's like the cherry factory on the way, or the, the cherry um, pie place on the way to Estes Park. That small community there got like 
really devastated by the flood. I'm not even sure how because they're like on a mountaintop, but they did. And so we're out there and we're serving and um, we're there for a few days. And they're like, hey, we met this sweet elderly lady and we're going to go serve her tomorrow. So the next day we roll into Pinewood Springs. We get to this elderly lady's house and we pull in. She meets us in the driveway. She's been living in just a camper that she had parked outside because her home was unlivable because of the flood. And she calls us all around. And we're standing there, and she gathers us up, and she tells us that about two months before the flood, her husband had passed away. And she was in her 80s and didn't know what to do. And she was just kind of losing it. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've never lived life without my husband in years. And so as she's wrestling with the loss of her husband, this flood comes in and just makes her house where she can't even live in it. And she's like, I don't even know where to begin. I, I didn't even know where to start in my home. And she tells us that she had pretty much given up hope and she had no motivation to continue going on. <clears throat> and she prays a prayer of desperation. This is not a Christian. She prays a prayer of desperation and she tells God, if you're real, I need hope. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. And so right after she gets done with this prayer, she gets a knock on a door from one of her neighbors. And her neighbor says, hey, I've got some good news. The, the cell phone towers have been restored just up the road. And so if you'll just walk to the top of the mountain that we live on here, you'll have cell phone service and you can like call your relatives, call your family, let them know that you're okay. So she walks up the road to make a phone call to call her family. And who does she meet but our team working in somebody else's home? She was in a place where she desperately needed hope and she runs into our team and asks us for help. And we got to spend the next three days working in her home, kind of removing mold from her home, making her home where it was like able that she could move back in. And on the final day, this whole time we're sharing the gospel of Jesus with her as we're doing this. And on the final day, she tells us, I'm ready to follow Jesus. It's undeniable that he is the only hope that I have. And I need that hope now more than ever. Just when she had given up hope, Jesus showed up in her life. And he was orchestrating everything that needed to be orchestrated for her to, to, to meet him. And when he did show up, the, the power of the reality of Jesus was undeniable. And the only response was belief, which led to hope for her. And, and I was thinking about this morning, I was thinking about the fact that Jesus has orchestrated every moment of your life this morning so that you would be here this morning and hear about the hope that Jesus has to offer you. And if you're tired of trying to do things your own way, you're tired of trying to fix your own situations with your own, like if I can just be good enough, if I can just get my life together, if I can just fix this or fix that, then things will be okay. Then I can have hope. If you're ready to let that stuff go, and trust what Jesus has already done for you, he will sweep into your life and he will give you the hope that you're looking for. That's the encouragement that we have this morning. No matter where you're at, no matter how much hope you need, no matter how hopeless you may feel, look at what Jesus did. This is why we celebrate Christmas. We look back at Jesus coming to this world in a time when we needed hope the most. And it's also a time where we look forward to Jesus' return when he will make everything right. And I just want to remind you this morning that no matter where you are, Jesus has not forgotten you. 
you are not hopeless. He is not put off by your barrenness or your inability to fix your own life. He's willing to step right into that because that's what he did 2,000 years ago in a manger. He stepped into the brokenness of the world. And he will give you hope if you believe. And one of the ways that God has given us to remind us of the fact that Jesus came and Jesus is coming again is communion, which is why uh, I know you take it as a church every week. We take it as a church every week as well. It's this reminder of what Jesus has done for us. And so it's a way to both look back on the fact that Jesus did come and he offered his life up for us, but it's also an opportunity, Paul says, that we will do this until he returns. It's a way that we look forward to the fact that Jesus is coming again and we are renewed in our hope of what Jesus will do when we take communion. So when you take the bread this morning, and I, will offer, I would encourage you to take communion this morning in our time of response. When you take the bread and you're reminded of the body of Jesus that was broken for you, when you take the juice and you're reminded of the blood of Jesus that was shed for you, it's an opportunity to look back but it's also an opportunity for us to look forward and to place our hope in Jesus and what Jesus will do when he returns. That he will come again. And so I want to encourage you to take communion this morning in our time of worship. I also want to invite you to sing, to sing along and just be reminded. Sometimes, sometimes Sunday morning is the most encouraging time of the week for me to just Sometimes I don't even sing. I just listen to other people sing the gospel over me because that's what I need is to be reminded of the gospel. And so this is an opportunity for you to sing the gospel and be reminded of the gospel this morning as you hear other people sing. And finally, I want to invite you, if you have not put your faith and your trust in Jesus, to do that this morning, to realize that your own efforts to fix yourself, they're barren without Christ. And you need Christ to step in and to just know that Jesus came to step into your barrenness and to give you hope and life in him if you will put your faith and your trust in him and him alone. And I just want to invite you to do that this morning as well. So let's pray together. God, I I thank you so much for the story of Zechariah and how it's not just the story of a couple in the Christmas story that you worked a miracle through, though it is that. And it's such an amazing thing that you would do that that it's so much more than that. It's the story of the nation of Israel and it's our story of our own barrenness and our own inability to fix our situation. And it's a reminder that you loved us so much that you sent John to prepare the way for the other child that you were sending, Jesus, who steps into our brokenness to, to do what we cannot do, which is save ourselves. So God, help us to trust you this morning to save to save us. Help us to trust you this morning as, by being a hopeful and optimistic people, knowing that you have a plan for this world and that you will step in and you will save and you will make all things new as you have promised. God, give us the hope that we need this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.